much, Catherine. So the PowerPoint's probably not the only thing that you have to forgive, by the way, okay? <laughs> can you hear me all right? I do talk quite quietly. I can hear me, but a bit louder. I'll try a bit louder. So Saul, who spent most of his life um, arresting Christians, was himself arrested on the road to Damascus, stopped in his tracks, halted as he made his way, struck by something in the aftermath of which nothing would be the same again. Can you hear me all right? Kester's pulling his ear, but I don't know whether he's just got wax in there or... I don't know. Saul would be a new person. No longer Saul the persecutor but Paul the Apostle, a new subject who would endeavour to live in light of the death and resurrection of Christ and who would encourage the formation of communities that remained faithful to these events. But Paul was and continues to be a controversial figure. Um, he's often offensive, an offensive figure. His letters have justified some of the most oppressive forms of Christianity homophobia, misogyny, and anti-Semitism. But for many contemporary philosophers, Paul opens up the possibility of a uh, revolutionary political collective. So not only might a new reading of Paul offer us a glimpse of this saint as a political theologian, but their work also might suggest that he can be seen as a theologian within what we've been calling this weekend radical theology, and that's within a, uh, a, a longer tradition in Western philosophy that I'll, I'll introduce in a little bit. So I'll start by doing that, by introducing this strand of philosophy, um, philosophy philosophical theology. Present what I'm calling a new Paul that emerges from radical theology and then raise some questions about the potential political theology of this Paul, but also um, of the church practices that emerge in conversation with it. I'm going to conclude by addressing some of the common criticisms of radical theology, that it's academic and abstract, divorced from the life of faith. So others might define this term radical theology differently. I'm using it... Um, to signal a variety of theologies within, within a particular lineage in Western philosophy. Radical theology might be said to begin in the 19th century, the century in which atheism and religious doubt more generally became a central figure of Western culture. Sorry, central feature of Western culture. Many of the great atheist critics of religion of Christianity and of Christendom developed their theories of religion in this century. It was a century when, as Friedrich Nietzsche observed, belief in the Christian God became unbelievable. I'll give you a bit of his picture before it goes. And when Nietzsche proclaimed the death of God 
in his parable of the madman. By Nietzsche. 20th and 21st century thinkers have since asked what theology might look like after the death of God. One important figure in the history of radical theology, Tom Altizer, has said that if there's one clear portal to the 20th century, it's the passage through the death of God. There he is. But what does it mean to proclaim the death of God? Further, what does it mean to pass through the death of God? For Nietzsche, the death of God is tied to his theory of the will to power, according to which um, morality emerges from a community's desire to grow, spread, and dominate. It means that there's no one morality, no one perspective from which to judge right and wrong, but many moralities, a plurality of perspectives. God has therefore become a value, a tradition, a custom to obey, an instrument of and a justification for the human will to power. He's now nothing more than the foundation of and guarantee for meaning and purpose. But Nietzsche's parable highlights that this recent event is far too great to comprehend even for the atheists who don't believe in him. Because this, the death of this God is the death of any absolute system of meaning, purpose, value, truth, whether religious or not. As a prophet of doom to both theists and atheists, then Nietzsche's madman announces the impossibility of any viable God's eye perspective on, transcendent source of, or absolute justification for any universal moral principles, including those provided by either revelation or reason. While the notion of death is um, frequently associated with Nietzsche, it finds an earlier expression in the work of Hegel. For Hegel, God is dead, both because God remains distant, unknowable, and therefore lifeless, and because it's through a certain death to himself that God the Father moves out of this remoteness in order to live imminently as God the Son. But on Hegel's reading of Christianity, a second death of God is necessary. So after God's first death at the Incarnation, where the Father becomes the Son, there is a second death at the Crucifixion, where the Son becomes the Spirit. This is achieving what Hegel calls the reconciliation between imminence and transcendence. This reconciliation isn't always understood as a higher synthesis of uh, thesis, antithesis, uh, synthesis that you might be familiar with. But radical theology represents a reworking of Hegel's basic insight about the death of God. It's not then really a, a particularly novel departure from Western religious tradition. So in using the term radical theology, I'm referring to this trajectory within what kind of might broadly be called postmodern theology that can trace its heritage back to Hegel. 
This is a strand of loosely associated theologies that might be said said to include Jack Puto, who some of you may have just heard. That's his own beer label, by the way. It says in the corner, a drink for any event. And Slavoj Zizek. I've later got a photo of Pete on the toilet. I just need one of Jack on the toilet, and then I've got my triptych. Okay. As well as um, Altizer, I've mentioned earlier, for whom the death of God is about the collapse of any meaning or reality lying beyond the newly discovered radical imminence of modern man, an imminence dissolving even the memory or the shadow of transcendence. So according to Altizer, this um, means refusing Hegel's final reconciliation between transcendence and imminence in favour of a thoroughly immanentist or atheist gospel. Um, he wrote a book called The Gospel of Christian Atheism, you might be, might be familiar with. He writes that the radical Christian proclaims that God has actually died in Christ, that this death is both a historical and a cosmic event which cannot be reversed by a subsequent religious or cosmic movement. In their book, Radical Theology and the Death of God, Altizer and William Hamilton wonder whether the event will prove to be the most useful answer to the question of what the death of God means. After all, Nietzsche refers to this death as the greatest recent event. But they also go on to ask, if the death of God is an event of some kind, when did it happen? For them, the death of God was historically um, realised in the 19th century, but for them, this event can't be detached from Jesus. The event for them is that of a transcendent God who dies in order to be born in the imminence and flesh of Jesus at the Incarnation. So the death of God is simultaneously an event of God. But for other radical theologians following this Hegelian lineage, the event occurs not at the Incarnation, but at the crucifixion or the resurrection. For Alain Badieu, St. Paul is a poet-thinker of the event. He sees in Paul's letters an exemplary example of his own philosophical project. This is one in which the event represents a revolution, a revolutionary break with the situation at hand that exposes the contingency of the way that the situation has been ordered or structured, showing that it's just the current way of ordering or structuring the world, that it can be changed. So for Bajir, Paul is engaged in the sustained effort of thinking through the consequences of proclaiming an event. What happens when you proclaim an event? when you say you believe an event happened. But as an atheist, Bajir is also clear that the event that Paul proclaims, the res uh, resurrection of Christ, is false, mythical, a fable. Whence, he writes, the necessity of constantly linking resurrection to our resurrection. This is not as a um, falsifiable or demonstrable fact of life after biological death, but as a subjective disposition, a way of living this life. 
In Zizek's radical theology, the event of Pauline Christianity is the death rather than the resurrection of Christ. For him, Christianity is the religion of a God who dies. Christ's cry of forsakenness at the cross is a moment in which God, the guarantor of meaning and purpose, is revealed to be impotent, dead, unable to function as the anchor for the social symbolic order, for the way we understand the world. The crucifixion of the Son isn't the moment that God passes from Father to Holy Spirit, so God becomes nothing but the community of believers. This, for Zizek, is a community that's not found in the church, but in the way of life sustained by a truly revolutionary political party, political collective. For both Badur and Zizek, the event is something rare, an occasional occurrence. A true event is something that changes the structure of the situation. So rather than solving a particular problem within a given field, an event constitutes the more radical gesture of sub, uh, subverting the structuring principle of that field. An event miraculously changes the standard by which we measure value measure and value our activity. This is why uh, Zizek makes a parallel between um, this event and what Nietzsche calls the transvaluation of values, of what's good and bad. It changes the very coordinates, therefore, of what's possible and present, of what the subject is capable of, of what we can do in our given limited world. It shows it's not limited in the way that we had inherited that something different can happen. Both Badur and Zizek differentiate between politics and the political. So the former has to do with action within a particular um, political system. The latter, Badur writes, is less the demand of a social fraction or community to be integrated into the existing order than something that touches on a transformation of that order as a whole. So while the demand to have one's identity um, recognised and valued within the existing situation, the existing state of things, is commendable, it might be necessary, this, for, for these philosophers, isn't um, properly political. It's a form of politics, but that's different from the political. So Zizek writes, this is politics proper, the political the moment in which a particular demand is not simply part of the negotiation of interests, but aims at something more, the global restructuring of the entire social space. This is why St. Paul, as a radical theologian of the event of God, is simultaneously a thinker of the political or a radical political theologian. For both Badur and Zizek, the central issue that Paul's wrestling with is the relationship between sin and the law. In Romans 7, Paul writes, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to cover if the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing a, an opportunity in the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So here, 
Paul is observing the, the intermingling of the law and the desire to transgress the law. Law, or this, this symbolic network that regulates our social world, encompasses both social norms and their codified transgressions. So precisely the way that the law operates is to provide both the letter of the law, the public text of the law, and then law's own inherent injunction for those who are subject to the law to break the law. The law's inherent underside contradicts this public text of the law, the letter of the law, but it actually underpins it rather than undermining it. So we might think that by transgressing a particular law, we're undermining it, but that transgression has already been written into the law and it actually underpins our submission to it. This is because we might gain pleasure from the ordained transgressions held out to us by the law. They provide kind of, these transgressions provide release valves so that this, we're encouraged to violate the letter of the law, but we're actually still maintaining the spirit of the law. So a good example is that part of what keeps us driving from driving too fast, which is the spirit of the law, is knowledge of both the speed limit and the fact that if we transgress that limit by a couple of miles an hour, we're not going to get arrested. We're not going to be punished. That's what keeps us from driving too fast, the ability to drive a little bit too fast. The law's form as a prohibition, thou shalt not drive too fast, over 70, sorry, creates an excessive desire to transgress the law, to disobey that prohibition. So in the full narrative, for example, it's the prohibition, the no, you shall not eat from that tree, that creates the desire for that's what's been prohibited. That's a topic that Pete was talking about earlier on this evening. The no creates the desire. So law and sin for Paul are two sides of the same coin meaning that we're all split subjects, divided between the law and the desire to transgress the law. Famously, Paul reflects on his own experiences of this split, this division within himself. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Paul introduces a second division between law, sin on the one hand, the first division that divides us all, and love on the other. For him, these are two subjective dispositions, subjective paths in life that divide everybody between the thought of the flesh which is death and the thought of the spirit which is life the thought of the flesh is governed by the law and what paul calls works but the spirit is dead to the law and gives life instead to the life of love through faith he writes while we were living in the flesh our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death but now we are discharged from the law, 
dead to that which held us captive, so that we are slaves not under the old written code, but in the new life of the spirit. For Paul, the radical theologian of the event, love is the name of the hard work or the labour of the subject who proclaims the event. Such a proclamation also creates a collective that's truly universal. In this new community, worldly differences are treated with indifference. They're both irrelevant and compatible with the proclamation of the event. For example, in Romans 14, Paul enjoins his readers not to argue about opinions. This can also be translated as do not argue about the discernment of differences. Whether one's circumcised or not circumcised, whether one eats foods, certain foods or abstains from them, whether one chooses this day or that day as the Sabbath doesn't ultimately matter. It's not that differences are somehow um, obliterated, differences remain, they, they exist, but they no longer count as essential. What ultimately matters is the extent to which worldly differences are consistent or inconsistent with the work of love. As Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but all, not all things build up. Differences, then, shouldn't prevent the subject who's faithful to the event from becoming, like Paul, all things to all men in order to proclaim the event to all people. And this is why for Paul there's no longer Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. Paul founds a new universalism in which believers participate regardless of their position within the existing social order. Love extracts or subtracts the subject from the law, suspending the differences that inscribe him or her into a specific place within the symbolic system. But biblical scholars contest this reading of Paul's universal community as one subtracted from particular individual and communal identities. They argue that Paul's idea was not to suspend all the differences in order to create a universal community, but to create such a community by universalising Judaism. By cutting different identities away from their roots, for sure, but then grafting them onto the one true identity, the tree of Israel. But for Zizek, Paul is clearly doing something within and to Judaism. He's not against Judaism. The stance towards the law that Zizek's Paul is proposing is already, according to Zizek, the Jewish stance towards the law. It involves not, not um, suspending the law per se, but in suspending the law, law's inherent injunction to transgress. Shall I explain? Zizek explains the potentially revolutionary nature of Pauline Christianity's Jewish roots by beginning with the story of Job. Job might be initially patient in the face of disaster and disease, 
but he protests what's happening to him, curses the day he's born. He lists the things he has to endure, constantly questioning why. Why must he suffer? He declares his righteousness and affirms his innocence and uh, stubbornly maintains that his complaint against God is just. Job's friends attempt to console and comfort him, to provide an explanation and justification for his suffering, but Job insists that no meaning can be offered for these injustices. When God finally does enter this, this theological debate about Job's suffering, God doesn't pro- then provide a satisfactory account of it. He instead asserts his power and authority. So in the face of Job's relentless questioning about the reasons behind his torment, God resorts to boasts. Where were you? When I laid the foundation of the earth, tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Basically, this boils down to, look what I can do. Can you do this? No. Who are you then to complain? But in God's bluster, isn't he acting a bit like he's been caught in a moment of impotence? His boasts of power reveal the opposite, his powerlessness. He's unable to either intervene in Job's suffering or provide them with meaning. The story of Job illustrates how Judaism reflects the psychoanalytic insight that what we once thought of as a secure system of meaning, value, purpose, truth no longer provides these things. God's weak and impotent. In other words, he is dead. Jesus sees what he calls the Jewish art of endless interpretation, not as some anti-Semitic Christians might, as a way of quibbling over the letter of the law in order to avoid its spirit, but as a stance towards the law that avoids the injunction to transgress the law. So for Jesus, the truth of God's law isn't hidden for Jews behind the law in some secret or perverse call to disobey the law, but rather it's directly present in the text or the letter of the law. Jews are at once subtracted from the laws of the society in which they live, and fully immersed in the law of God, following it to the letter. A proper understanding of this Jewish attitude to the law, which forms the context in which Paul's writing, enables a proper understanding of the nature and subversive potential of Pauline Christianity. Zizek clarifies that Christian love is not beyond the law in the sense of being without law, rather loves a particular Jewish stance within the law, but a stance that is without sin, without the inherent injunction that incites sin and that sustains the subject's obedience through illicit enjoyment. Love is the stance of total immersion in the law, for Zizek's Paul, 
because the way to subvert the, the existing order is to stick to the letter of the law and ignore its injunction to transgress, its obscene underside that underpins rather than undermines. Zizek explains, the subject is actually in, caught in the web of, power, only and precisely insofar as he does not fully identify with it, but maintains a kind of distance towards it. On the other hand, the system of public law is actually undermined by unreserved identification with it. This sounds a bit counterintuitive, but the example of how the prison system works is a good illustration of the point. So prison attains a true hold over me, not when I'm unable to imagine life outside prison. I can't even envisage my own freedom. But precisely when I maintain this kind of inner distance from the fact that I'm in prison. The hold prison has over me is broken through full acceptance of the fact that I'm in prison. Full acceptance of the immersion of my an immersion in, sorry, full acceptance of an immersion in the rules of prison life, the prison law, the social world that governs that universe. Because from my position within those rules, that law, I can work towards changing them. In other words, the, the, the daydreaming about life elsewhere, life outside the prison, it's allowed by the prison system. The transgressions ordained by the social law are allowed precisely because they enchain us to prison life, to prison law, to social law, to social life as it is in its current state. But full acceptance of our material reality is the fact that I'm in prison opens up a space for true hope and revolution. So it's the structure of law as law sin that's problematic rather than the content, the particular content of law itself. This might be reasonable or, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, beneficial. Specifically, the problem is law's form as a prohibition, inciting transgression of the letter of the law in order to actually maintain the spirit of the law. Law as prohibition can be contrasted, though, with law as affirmation. Love means being presented with a yes rather than a no. Full immersion in the content or public letter of the law may, in fact, as in the example of the prison system, undermine the spirit of the law and allow for true transgression, subversion and revolution. Where Dostoevsky remarks that if there is no God, then everything is permitted, Paul counters that everything is permitted precisely because there is a God of love. For the Christian action is grounded, therefore, not in response to a prohibition, which would also generate the desire to engage in that which is prohibited, but in the positive, affirmative attitude of love. In love, nothing is prohibited. The Christian acts in certain ways, refrains from certain others, not because of the law, but according to the extent to which they're beneficial 
or not, for the work or the labour of building up the community of love that is faithful to the event of Christ. For Zizek, the Jewish stance towards the law and the notion of the death of God come to form the central core of Pauline Christianity. In Judaism, God keeps his impotence hidden not from Job, but in his bravado from himself. The difference between Judaism and Christianity, according to Zizek, is the difference between Job and Christ. Both suffer, and both suffer meaninglessly. But in Christ's cry on the cross, God's impotence is revealed to God himself. This, Zizek says, is the sort of God required by the revolutionary politics of the left today. A God who is not only dead, but knows this himself. While for other radical theologians, the event is that of making God's incarnation or God's resurrection our own, for Zizek, it's that of making God's death our own. This is Paul. To become a good... No, it's not. It's Zizek. Ooh. To become a good Christian and embrace love, one should thus die to the law, that's Paul, to break up the vicious cycle of sinful passions aroused by the law. For Zizek, life and death are both biological and symbolic concepts. Our mother's bodies are the wombs of our first physical birth, but our own bodies are the womb-like site of a second birth, a symbolic birth, a social birth, the birth of subjectivity, our sense of self. According to Zizek, symbolic birth involves submission to the symbolic order, to what the other says I am, to what law says I am. Here we accept our allotted identities and roles, our lot in life. But the second birth also marks the possibility of a second death, not a biological death, but a symbolic or social death, a death of self. It involves unplugging or uncoupling, subtracting or suspending ourselves from our social identities and roles, our organic communities of birth, refusing to accept our lot in social life. We enter the space between two deaths, between symbolic and biological death. This is the domain of the undead, of those who are still alive physically, but symbolically are dead. Dying to the law, to the social symbolic order that dominated and regulated their lives, the undead live as part of a new universal collective that cuts across existing conceptions of identity. So Zizek writes that when Paul says there are no Greeks or Jews, no men or women, this does not mean that we are all one happy human family, but rather that there is one big divide which cuts across all these particular identities, rendering them ultimately irrelevant. The old divisions that structured Paul's world included Jew, Greek, male and female, slave and free. But the new division between law and sin on one hand, above that line, love on the other, cuts across these old divisions. So the divisions going vertically are now cut by a horizontal cut, dividing identities from within. So Christian above the line 
is living in law, sin. Christian below the line is living in love. So that's a division within Christian identity. But Christians living in love are united with Jews living in love. For Paul, existing identities and groupings divide humanity. But the suspension of identities through dying to the law that inscribes us into our particular roles leads to a universal collective. The true division is now between those that remain part of the existing law and those who participate in the social world of obligations through an attitude of suspension, through Paul's as-if-not prescriptions of 1 Corinthians 7, where he writes, Brothers and sisters, the appointed time has grown short, which I'm trying to keep an eye on. From now on, let even those who have wives be as though they had none, those who mourn as though they were rejoicing, those who buy as though they had no possessions, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. This as-if-not community forms a collective that breaks out of this cycle of law, sin, by embracing the law of love. For radical theologians like Badur and Zizek, our ability to suspend our various social identities, to undergo this symbolic death, to thereby you know, die to the social order that's been dominating and regulating our lot in life. This marks the possibility of revolutionary emancipatory politics. Their reading of Paul's letters turns the saint into a radical political theologian who can be employed to illustrate their own projects of what I call the suspension of identity politics. Bajur and Zizek argue against identity politics and standpoint epistemologies. These are ways of knowing the world, epistemologies, based on where we stand in the world. They argue against identity politics and standpoint epistemologies in favour of what Bajur calls a generic humanity or a universal humanism. Both Bajur and Zizek bemoan the shift from class struggle to communal identity politics. They each regret this move from a politics based on a central economic antagonism that unites humanity against the existing capitalist system. Shift from that to a politics founded on specific communitarian identities. This fragments humanity into groups of victims demanding recognition within the system. So the problem is not primarily today's politicisation of uh, previously excluded domains of politics, but it's depoliticisation of economics, it's exclusion of economics, so that cultural recognition matters more than this socio-economic struggle. Feminism, LGBT and queer politics, ecological and disability activism, ethnic and other so-called minority politics have reshaped our entire political and cultural landscape, but it's the very exclusion of economics from politics that remains the main obstacle to the realisation of these political demands. The globalised capital social order, capitalist social order, is able to neutralise the political edge of these movements by adapting to satisfy their needs, the needs of each group and subgroup, it caters to them 
but in doing so makes them nothing more than ever more niche consumer markets. In place of identity politics, then, Paul proposes a form of politics grounded not in a particular group identity, but in a universal collective in which identity is suspended. But here we can raise the first of our critical questions, for the suspension of identity can strike a rather disturbing chord for individuals and groups for whom the construction and recognition of identity has been or continues to be the acknowledged aim of political struggle. What's the relationship between identity suspension and identity politics? Between a politics based on a universal humanism and political thought and action that's grounded in communitarian identities like gender, sexuality, race, disability. The possibly contested relationship between these philosophical readings of Paul and the practice of identity politics raises this wider critical question of how a Pauline political theology of identity suspension relates to concrete politics. For example, Zizek's critics have suggested that he offers no constructive suggestions for political action and activism. But Zizek is concerned with the political work of identifying what would be an equivalent social body to represent the Jewish stance towards the law today. It's not the church, by the way. It seems as if his current period of theological engagement with Paul's letters has enabled him to identify, to locate this stance in slum collectives. He says that a slum dweller is the one with regard to whom the power renounces its right to exert full control and discipline, finding it more appropriate to let him dwell in the twilight zone of slums. So for Zizek, slums represent this radical break of self-organised communities in zones that are outside the law. In his excellent book, Zizek and Theology, Adam Kotzko explains further that to make explicit the connection with the rise of Christianity then, one must look for some type of event to emerge out of the slums that will somehow allow the Gentiles who are plugged into capitalism, to unplug and join in the creation of something new. However, the question arises as to what Zizek's suggesting these Gentiles do in the meantime, while they're waiting for an event that enables them to lay down their identities and roles within the capitalist system and to take up arms in economic and political class struggle. Several criticisms are often made of Zizek at this point. Firstly, that Zizek's work fantasises about some kind of cataclysmic political event that radically alters the, the coordinates of the situation that we find ourselves in. And secondly, that he recommends, while waiting such, for such a revolutionary political event, that he recommends a politics that amounts to inaction to waiting. According to Zizek, any strategic acts of resistance that don't subvert the entire system amount to the surrender 
to and ultimately the support of the existing situation. Resistance is futile. Many of you may, may recognise these Zuzekian and political themes from the work of Pete Rollins. That's Pete on the loo. In his earliest publications, Pete wrote about believing in the right way rather than believing the right beliefs. But he's kind of increasingly come to understand this practice of holding beliefs lightly as the process of laying down beliefs and suspending identity. He speaks of suspended space in which participants' identities, including their um, religious identities, are left at the door to create a space of neither nor. Participants can then explore a different mode of social relation with each other. And through this exploration, they hope to transform social and political practices outside these temporary liturgical spaces. Participants within these spaces can encounter one another apart from their social identities and roles. They can experience each other's uniqueness or singularity. And they can encourage the creation of new forms of subjectivity and selfhood. So it's therefore imagined that this suspension of identity can offer a different vision of life in the West, what Pete calls a theatrical performance of that messianic time when all will be equal. But we can also raise questions about how even a liturgical or otherwise temporary suspension of identity is actually experienced by those participating in this space. Is laying down identity always transformative, or might it often be harmful? especially for those who struggle to construct identity or to have that identity recognised as valid by others with more privileged symbolic identities and roles in society. Is this Pauline radical theology of identity suspension a political theology of the privileged? And for the white middle classes in particular, this is a topic that Marika Rose is um, going to address in more detail in her talk on radical theology the question of whether, whether white middle-class people can be radical. Further, to what extent might a political theology of identity suspension encourage the creation of communal spaces and practices that actually reinforce consumerist individualism rather than enabling participants to unplug from capitalism to imagine alternative modes of social, economic and political life? For Zizek, institutionalised Christianity turns the universal Pauline community into a protective umbrella for a particular group. But anti-institutionalised Christianity isn't the remedy, since the shift from institutions to um, what Zizek calls the intimacy of spiritual experience is the form of religiosity that best fits capitalism. Pete attempts to traverse a path between these twin dangers, but to what extent is he successful? To what extent does the practice of identity suspension create the radical sociality of Zizek's communist collective? These are important critical questions, but more empirical research is required to answer them.
So to conclude, it's often suggested that radical theology is academic and disconnected from the life of faith, resulting in some kind of pure or empty theory in which lived religion is formalised or kind of bracketed out in favour of religious abstractionism. Allergic to particularity, radical theology bears none of the specifics of the Christian tradition, which is demythologized, and it's severed from determinate religious beliefs and practices and concrete communal life. I want to conclude by suggesting that such a criticism mistakes the nature of radical theology. For Caputo, radical theology is a second-order discourse on the Church's first-order discourse, on what might be called its confessional theology. So the criticism that radical theology is not rooted in the life of the Church but in the Academy confuses radical theology with confessional theology, confuses the first-order theology of the Church, theology and practice of the Church, with second-order reflections on that theology and practice. Radical theology is therefore about an exploration of what's going on in confessional theology, in biblical narratives, in the church's inherited traditions of interpretation, in its understanding of its own practices. In other words, it's done to an eye to what's it's done with an eye to what's going on in the church's discursive and practical life. For radical theologians like Caputo, the event isn't located at at the point of a particular and rare happening, as it is for um, Bajur and Zizek. Rather, the event's something that's going on in what happens. Without going into too much detail about Caputo's theology of the the event, the event disrupts what happens, what's present, what is names, things, institutions, traditions, communities, identities, disrupts them with possibilities for being otherwise, seeking the actualization of alternative possibilities for what exists and for existence itself. For Caputo, the event isn't something that happened only at the incarnation, crucifixion or resurrection of God. There's something going on in these names, in the name, the word, incarnation, crucifixion or resurrection. Something going on in these names as well as in many other names besides names like justice, faith, hope and love. It means that the event isn't the exclusive property of any one historical happening, of any one tradition, community or identity. But it's something that might be going on in them that might be going on in them, perhaps, and that might be going on in them, perhaps, in all of them. So I'd like to say that the task of the radical theologian is less about illustrating how a particular radical theology might might sort of translate into a specific concrete practice, more about identifying what's already going on in existing practices including the church's practices of confessional theology. Thank you.
If there are any questions or comments that people want to make, we'll listen to them and not answer them. But we would like to record them because <laughs> the talk has been recorded. So just wave your hand if you'd like the, the microphone. Andrew Sweeney, I'm a uh, parish priest in South London. Um, hello. Hi. I'm not an academic. I'm a, a Christian looking for a, a way of engaging meaningfully with what the rest of the world call poli calls politics. Um, so forgive me if I've missed some subtleties or assumptions in what you might have been saying this evening, but... What, what do you think of the contention that without a radical transcendent reference point, any attempt to organize a political community will eventually tend towards totalitarianism because it becomes self-referential. And, and doesn't the idea that at the end we ended up wondering whether even participation in the messianic reality that, uh, uh, that we try and create for ourselves sometimes uh, could only be considered in that dichotomy of wondering whether it was consumer capitalist or communist in the end. Don't those point to the idea that we're still looking at something that's spiralling towards a self-referential totalitarianism? Um, I guess I'd, I'd start by saying I'm not sure whether I see the connection between self-referentiality and totalitarianism um, one of the things that Zizek's precisely talking about in this community that he's talking about is in a sense self-referentiality it's something going on in what people are doing the political activities that that group are engaging in in order to proclaim their proclamation. Um, so in that sense, it's self-referential. But for Zizek, what's going on in that is kind of self-organising. There isn't this transcendent reference point um, to ground it in or use as justification for it. Without that point, it means that you have to recognise the contingency of yeah, your, your faith in the event, your belief in what you're doing, what you're trying to achieve. Once you start recognising the contingency of what you're doing, you start realizing that it is self-referential but in that sense it's also self-determining um a key part is that this is freedom it's self-determination um so yeah i think i think i'd need to think more about the relationship between that and necessarily being totalitarianism but that's, a, that's the question of totalitarianism is, is, of course, something that Zizek gets asked about a lot. Yeah. 
Yeah. Thank you. That was a, that was a great question. <laughs> Hi, Catherine. <coughs> um, my question is unformulated yet, as yet. Um, so is the answer. <laughs> something about um, Zizek's idea that um, any sort of political action at the at the surface, which isn't, you know, uh, critiquing the whole system of capitalism, does that is his suggestion that any acts of the sort of identity politics aren't worth it, or they're they're supporting the problem? And then I wonder how that sits with political actions of, you know, uh, looking after people who are homeless or. Do you know any kind of justice work? Mm. Um, is the suggestion that you wouldn't engage with that at all? And how does that sit um, with you and with uh, notions of Jesus talking about yeah. feeding the hungry? And I mean, on, on some levels, yeah, I'm, I, I'm great with that. I mean, they don't have to do anything. Why would you not like that? But <laughs> that's precisely my question. How do these two things relate to each other. I'm incredibly attracted to this notion of a universal kind of militant, revolutionary break with the whole thing, turn it all on its head thing. That that gets me. That's a, that's something that I'm attracted to and at the same time I'm a feminist and I've done a lot of work on LGBT Christianity and practices and theory and I don't get I don't get how those two things go together. Um that's that's the question I'm asking and I want to answer that next, really. But yeah, on a, on a superficial level, why why wouldn't you be attracted to a theory that seems to say you don't have to do anything? Wait, wait for it to come along. But how dangerous is that as well? That's 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 my question. Yeah. So I need some funding to go and answer it. Just one more, if we may. Uh, I was just wondering how you can put Paul's uh, theories into radical theology when in the quote that you uh, showed half of it says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. Because then if we're one in Christ, then we believe in Christ's death and resurrection, which then surely destroys the theory of God being dead. Yeah, I mean, a great... A great question because part of the reason that Zizek says that revolutionary political collective isn't the church today is precisely because Christian has turned into another identity it's another identity that needs to have this cut across it um, so that that's a quite a quick answer to, to that is it rejoinder kind of so just wondering how Paul's theories go in with, with radical theology, really, that's all. Um, well, that's a question, I guess, of whether we want to look at 
whether we can find out what Paul meant. Is that is that kind of what you're saying? Because, you know, there would be competing arguments from biblical scholars to go along with the competing philosophical interpretations of Paul. You're kind of going, you don't think so. Not sure about... Well, I mean, there's there's a, a great point that that uh, someone called Paula um, Fredrickson makes that you can get a lot of mileage out of that quote in Galatians of there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, etc. And that's like a little nugget of a body of work in which there are contradictions. I think that part of what I would say about um, Jack's work about approaches to texts that are deconstructive is that you don't read all of the texts through one little quote in perhaps the way that Bajur and Zizek are forcing Paul into this model that comes from this little quote, Galatians 3.28. Um, in... Jack's work in Derrida's reading of text, he's always looking for the multiplicity of voices in a text. So I guess that would that would get to a little bit of what you're saying, that it's perhaps these radical theologians are very much reading all of Paul through one nugget that you can get a lot of mileage out of. Okay, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, we are out of time. Thank you very much, Catherine, for our appreciation. Um, um, if there is uh, more to be discussed, perhaps it could go on in the Jesus Arms or something like that. But uh, thank you very much indeed. Thank you all. We are going to clear the venue now and need to return the equipment. Thank I don't you. think there's any perhaps about that, is there? Continued in the Jesus Arms. Thank you very much for your help. Well,